Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your law as it both convicts us and it also is is an agent that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into your law, into your truth, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things that are there, that we might be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please open with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Well, we will look at verses 1 through 23, which is, of course, the whole chapter. It's fun being Romans. I hope you guys are enjoying Romans. I'm enjoying Romans. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 6? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? So what does life look like as a Christian? You know, when I was a kid growing up in the church, I thought it meant you had to be good and keep the rules, as so many of us do. And, and when I did, I felt 
pretty good about myself. I would go so far as to say that it made me feel like I was better than many of my friends. Now that was perhaps something that happened on a subconscious level as opposed to a conscious level. If you'd asked me, I'd never said that. But there is this innate sense that because I have keeping the rules, because I am doing what seems to be right, I'm better than these other people who don't seem to be. And of course, it caused me to stand apart as well. I was one of the few people in my middle-aged school that you know, wasn't cussing and, and high school days is drinking. So the, the, the refusal to do those things both made me feel, on the one hand, a sense of superiority over those who were doing them, but it also made me feel a sense of emptiness because I was missing out on all the fun, so I thought. So you're, you struggle with this thing. If, if what does it look like to live a Christian life means simply keeping the rules, it can leave you feeling in conflicted ways. It can make you feel perhaps superior, which by the way, that's not a good feeling to have as a Christian. And it can make you feel empty, which by the way, that also is not a good feeling that you are to have as a Christian. So it puts you in this interesting place when you think that looking, to look like a Christian, I simply have to keep the rules and follow the law. And I bring this up because the law of God, more often than not, is a misunderstood thing. We don't not quite know exactly what to do with it. We ask, is it a life-giving thing or is it a life-robbing thing? And of course, we wouldn't be the first ones with this kind of confusion. Paul writes about the law in the next couple of chapters for us addressing this very thing. So what is the answer? Well, I would say it depends. What does it depend on? It depends on how you view the law. If you view the law as a means of approaching God, you will find yourself feeling the very things I talked about. You'll feel either superior if you feel like you're keeping it well, or you'll feel, find yourself feeling like you're guilty because you're not, feeling it, you're not keeping it well. But the one thing that you hope to feel, you will not feel at all and that is closer to God. You will be missing that. So does that mean that the law is a bad thing? That's kind of what Paul is addressing here. Is the law therefore a bad thing? Well, no, the law is not a bad thing. Our use of the law, or better yet, our abuse of the law is a bad thing. Now this reminds me, there's a, there's a fascinating story that you find in our church history if you're one of those students of church history, in 18th century Scotland. The Scottish church there, it was a particular town, for those of you who've been to Scotland, called Arcturarder, if I think I'm pronouncing that right. So my Scottish, my, my golfers out there have been to Scotland. It's not that far from Edinburgh. Did you ever see that town? Been here to that one? It's a little bitty, little bitty town. But there was a Presbytery meeting in the Scottish Presbyterian church that happened in the year 1721 in that little town. And... Uh, when a man, there was a man coming up for uh, his ordination exams named William Craig, and he was being examined on the floor, and that presbytery liked to ask a particular question of all of its candidates, and it became known as the Octorarder Creed um, because of it. And this is what they would ask. They would ask him to affirm this short creed, I believe that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that you must forsake sin in order to come to Christ. Now, it's, it's worded a little 
convoluted to try to figure out what, what, what's he just asking me to do? And there could be some confusion to that. But it was highlighting what was happening in the presbytery. There was a division that was, that was going on in the church at the time. And there were those who were putting forth the, the idea that in order to come to Christ, you must first forsake sin. And so this group was there, this group who was there in this presbytery was trying to divorce themselves from that idea. So they're asking candidates to come out saying, I believe it is, that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that. I believe that it is not sound and orthodox to first teach that you must, or to teach that you must first forsake sin in order to come to Christ. Now what was at stake was how they understood the law. What is the place of the law in a person's life? You know, is the law something that we have to look to first in order to come to Christ? Or is the law something that we look to last after we've already come to Christ? That was really the issue of what was at stake. And I, I can certainly understand why it can be confusing because we, I mean, even when we uh, interview members here at Cornerstone, when someone wants to join the church, you know, we, we, we meet with them and we want to ask them simply, Tell us your story of how you came to the place you are where your faith is in Christ. And as they tell us their story, what we're listening for is evidence. We're listening for fruit of that. We're listening for evidence to say that, yeah, my life looks like a certain way. My life does seem to look like I am trying to live a good one. I'm trying to keep the rules, as it were. So it could seem like, when you think that way, that we're looking for someone who is already gotten their life in order, who has already sought to follow the law, therefore now will allow them to know Christ. Of course, that's not what we're doing at all when we interview those people. What we're looking for is, is not the means that they've come to Christ, but evidence of the fact that, yes, Christ has brought them to himself. Because there is a place for the law in the life of a believer. And that's important to know because as we've been looking so far in the book of Romans, it just seems like he's just beating on the law, beating on the law, beating on the law to say the law is not the way to come to Christ. You cannot find yourself ever justified by following the law. That's been his major theme so far in the book of Romans. And so that's why he keeps asking the question, well, should I sin more so that grace can I bound? Therefore, we should just throw out the law? And that's that's a bit of what was happening in the church of Scotland during that time. There was, there was this view of the law that you're either... The, the fear of those people who wanted, who wanted uh, them to teach that you do have to forsake sin in order to come to Christ. We're afraid that if we don't teach that way, that people will look at the law in a negative way. They'll throw it out. And they, there's a term for that. They would call those people the antinomians. Now, the irony is the, there's another side that people look at and would say, would want to say that the opposite of antinomianism is legalism, that the way I approach God is by following the law. But what's so ironic about both of those viewpoints is they're actually looking at the law with the same purpose. One is just embracing it and one is just rejecting it. The one says because, that you must keep the law because that is the way you are justified. The other one says, because you can't be justified by the law, therefore we don't need the law. You see, the idea is that if the law is for your justification, then it's, then it's not working. It doesn't work. And that, of course, is what Paul has been beating on and beating on and beating on. In fact, if you go and you continue to read, what does he say is the reason the law has been given and the only reason so far in the book of Romans that we don't know about, those others have been hinted at, 
but was in, said clearly in, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there's his first purpose of the law that he's been explaining. You know, if the law is not the way you're justified, well, what good is it? He's saying, well, one good is it's, it's exposing it's exposing uh, your own sin to you. It's a mirror showing you that you are, in fact, guilty on your own before the Lord. Uh, through the law comes a knowledge of sin, and specifically he's talking about a knowledge of your own sin. And so as, as we think about that, it's paramount to understanding that the free gift of God, of eternal life, of justification, is holy a work of God's grace, and that's what he's been saying. It has to be viewed as a work of God's grace. It cannot ever be used, the law that is, as a means of justification. So that's, that's kind of where he has been in the book of Romans so far, which could lead us, if we're not careful, to think then, oh, well, therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. If the law is not advantageous or helpful for me to be justified in the eyes of God, then it doesn't matter what I do. I can live however I want. And, of course, we know that's not the case. And Romans 6 is beginning to bring that out. He's beginning to draw that out and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, there is, there is another purpose in the law. There are other reasons why the law is significant for us to attend to. And we were looking at one of those, or looking at part of that, or at least the, maybe not at the reason for it, but the aspect of it in, in your call to worship this morning. As the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so forth. Going forth down, concluding, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And you think, how is the law those things? How is it sweet? How can it be something that we would desire more than the finest of gold? Well, if it's used as a means of justification, then it's not those things at all. But there, so there must be some other important purpose of it. So what is that? Well, let's consider the Israelites' timeline, because Paul likes to, like to do that so often. The Israelites' timeline, and when did they actually receive the law? Because uh, the Israelites, if you think about their story, I mean, they were given great promises, of course, to their forefather Abraham, but before they'd ever received the law, they went into Egypt and they became enslaved there. And they were enslaved for some 400 years until they cried out for deliver. And that's, you know, the story of when God raised up Moses. Moses went back to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So the Lord brings upon him the plagues, the mighty, to, to show his mighty hand and finally causes the Pharaoh to relent. So they are set free from their slavery and they're brought to the mountain of God, the Mount Sinai, where God had met Moses originally and told him to bring them back here. And it's not until they are brought out of slavery and brought to the Lord that they're given the law. So right, right there, if you look at just at the timeline, there is absolutely no way they could ever have, have reached God's presence if the way they could do that was by keeping the law, because they couldn't keep the law. Why could they not keep the law? Well, one, they didn't have the law. It didn't exist on the books yet for them to keep it. That would be one reason. The other reason was they were living a life under the bondage of slavery. 
which means the way they had to live was dictated to them by their overlords. They couldn't alter from that. So even if they had had the law, they were forced to live a particular way because they were in slavery. So in order for them to come to a point of having the law, they first had to be brought out of their slavery and brought to the Lord. So there's this aspect. And now that they've been rescued from their slavery, set free from that, and they've brought to the Lord, they're given the law, with the implication being that now that I have broken the bonds that have held you in slavery, you have a new power to live a life that was different than before. Now, the Old Testament doesn't explain exactly how that can be empowered, but, the, but Paul is explaining exactly in this passage, how is that possible now? And he says the reason that that's possible now, that you actually can follow the law, is because you've been empowered by being united with Christ. You have been united to Christ, both in his death and in his resurrection. And that is the power by which you can now live according to the law that God has revealed. Not to mention that, but now you have a new master. You've been broken free from the old one, and now you have a new one. So let's go through those quickly to see what is he talking about here. Romans, uh, Romans 6, verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we see, really, that's the purpose that he's after. The reason that you have been united to Christ in his death, the reason you've been united to him in his life, is so that you will walk in newness of life. How do we know what that newness of life looks like? Well, it's according to the law. The law is a description of how we are to live before the Lord. I should make one qualifying remark about what do I mean by the law. Specifically, we're talking about the moral law of God. If you do go back and break down the, the first five books of the Bible and see the different laws that have come down to the people of Israel, you can kind of categorize them into three different areas. One, you have uh, the civil law that had to do with how do they operate as a nation. And then there was, of course, there was the cleanliness laws that set them apart from the other nations in the world, the ceremonial laws as they were. And then, of course, there was the moral law. The Ten Commandments would be categorized under the moral law. These are what reflect the nature and the character of God in whose image that we were made. So they are showing us how do we live now that we've been brought into the presence of God. This is how we are to live. And Paul is explaining now you actually have the power to live that way because you have been united to Christ. So first of all, he says, you've been united in his death. Again, verses 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You have been baptized into the death of Christ. Now, when Christ died on the cross... His death was the death that sinners deserve because of their guilt. The only way that death counts for your death is if you are united with Christ. Do you see how that is? This is not just this empty death that Christ, that Christ uh, uh, offered. 
This had to be some specific kind of death. There has to be some union there for it to be valid at all. In fact, we've talked about this before, but one of the interesting things about God is we say one of his characteristics is that he is a just God. And if God is a just God, he means he is is executing justice in a just way. He's not like the unjust judge who would not be just, who would be accepting bribes and giving judgments that are not just, as it were. And I think I mentioned this last week, if you can imagine someone being brought off the street to pay for the sin of somebody they do not know, because the judge says, well, you're the one's guilty, but we're going to punish you, you know, we would call that a very unjust thing. I mean, think about the boy who's playing baseball on the street, and he hits a baseball through his neighbor's window. There's, there's a real physical cost associated with replacing that window. And that neighbor, as he sees this boy, this six-year-old boy, he comes to you if you're the father, and he demands that you pay for the window. And we would say that that was a just thing. Why is that a just thing? Because you have a unique relationship with that boy. He has, he has united to you. So if, if the man whose window was broken decided to go to you and you're simply another neighbor of the boy, well, that wouldn't be a just thing because there's no union there. There's no connection there. So he's saying, look, the reason that this is important is you have been united to Christ in his death. That's why his death is valid for you. That means you also have died to the very sin that you were once enslaved to. You have died to it. How do we know? Because you were united to Christ in His death. That's what He's saying. That's the picture. You died to the power of sin, which was broken by Christ. So the question He's asking, if Christ went to such great lengths to die to your sin for you, why would you ever think it was okay to continue to live the kind of life that His death freed you from? Second, you are united in his resurrection. So he's already established that you are united with Christ in his death. It follows then that you are also united with him in his resurrection. And we see this again as we look at verses 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the implication in this union with Christ in his resurrection is that our lives too reflect this same glory, this same power of God at work. We are united with Christ in his resurrection that we might walk in this newness of life. Which, of course, how do you know what that looks like? Well, it means we're living like Christ lived. We're living in a keeping with the law of God. We are united with Him that our lives might look like His. Therefore, the law is showing us not how to be justified, but how to walk in newness of life. And since we are united with Christ in His resurrection, we have been empowered to walk in this way. Now, let's talk about application of this for just a minute, because we know by experience that we don't always walk in such a way. So while we have been empowered to walk in accord with God's law because of our union with Christ, we don't always choose to do so. And so we have Paul's exhortation after exhortation after exhortation 
If you look at verses 12 through 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So we are united to him in his death And we are united to him in his resurrection. Therefore, we have become slaves from sin to righteousness. I think that's important to understand. I think there is this sense that when God saves a person, he has set them free from sin as though that means they're free to do whatever they want. Can you imagine that in the case of the Israelites? If the Israelites had been set free from their bondage to the Egyptians, and that was it, he just says, okay, I'm setting you free. I'm just setting you free. I'm bringing you out of Egypt. Now, therefore, go live however you want. Go do whatever you want. Where are they going to be? Well, they're going to be in the wilderness, for one. They're going to be in a place that won't sustain them. They're going to be in a place where they no longer have access to the the leeks and the onions and the fish that they were provided for in their slavery in Egypt. In other words, their slavery in Egypt would have looked much better than their life simply set free from the slavery, but saved to nothing else. It's so important to see that. That's not what God does. He doesn't just pay for your sins so that you can live however you want. He pays for your sins specifically so that you will have a new master. And I know we don't like that term, slaves and master, but you, you will have a new sustainer. You will have a new provider. Think about that for, for a second, the way he puts it. We'll look at verse 15 and 16, and then we'll ponder that. What then? Are we to sin because you are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So you, are, you, you have this power now to live a different life but it doesn't mean you necessarily will make that choice every day. And each one of those choices that you make every day has fruit associated with it. And if if you submit yourself, as he says, to sin, then you have become once again a slave to sin. And what fruit do you get from being a slave to sin? He's saying it leads to death as opposed to leading to life. And we get this. I think we get this intuitively. When you live a life that's not in keeping with God's law, it is not good for you in the long run. It's not good for society in the long run. It is fueling this whole idea of death, whether it's individual death, whether it's physical death, whether it's the death of society, the death of the family, whatever it is. If you, I mean, if you think about some of the, the, the laws that we would break, you know, whether it's coveting or murder, even if it's just speaking bad about someone, or if it's adultery, not being faithful, all of those things have negative consequences upon you as an individual, upon your family and friends who you're close to, and ultimately upon society. So the fruit of choosing to submit yourselves as a slave to sin is always yielding death. You think about it long term, it, it is the thing that, that unmakes you, it unmakes society. It causes disintegration. You just don't always immediately feel it. I mean, in the immediate short term, you may feel a temporary high as a result of it. 
I'm coveting something and I gain it from my neighbors because I take it. Well, I immediately, it may be an immediate sense of, well, I'm enjoying this thing I've taken or stolen. Until, of course, it, its uh, wickedness works its way into the effects of society. The guilt that has come along creeps back in and overcomes the joy that you once knew from it. I mean, sin, when you're a slave to sin, it's the same thing as being addicted to something. I mean, think of a physical, a physical substance to which people get addicted to. Even when they know they don't want to do it anymore, they're in bondage to it, enslaved. And they can't break free. What do they need to break free? They need some outside force to act upon them. And that's, of course, what God does in the setting free from the slavery. I'm setting you free from your slavery. You've, you've been united with Christ in his death. That was the power that set you free from the slavery. And you've been united to Christ in his life so that you can come and now live in my presence. And I will provide for you. I will be your new sustainer. I will be the one who gives you your identity. I will be the one who provides for you and cares for you and leads you through the difficulties of life, leading you through the wilderness, as it were, until eventually you arrive at the place of eternal life, of eternal promise of the promised land. That's this picture. But only as you submit yourself to this new master will you follow those ways. So he exhorts us, exhorts us to live in step with God. Verse 17. Look there with me. He says... Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching in which you were committed. So here we go. What is the standard of teaching that you were committed? It's it's the law of God. And what kind of obedience do you now have as a result of that? He calls it, you are obedient from the heart as opposed to out of the sense of obligation and, and duty. There's this sense that This has now become my heart's desire because it's telling me how I please my new master. It's telling me how I live in peace and harmony with my God. So it's become the very thing that the psalmist describes. It's become the thing that is sweeter than honey. It's become the thing that's that's, uh, more desirable than, than pure gold. And I follow it because it is my greatest desire to walk in the way after my master. So it changes everything about your perspective of the law. It's not this thing that you must do that weighs down upon your soul and prevents you from enjoying some aspect of life. As when I was a teenager, I used to think of it. Oh, I'm keeping the law, but it's preventing me from experiencing life. It was, exper- it was preventing me from perhaps experiencing some of the fruit of of sin, (laughs) but it was making me feel empty because I wasn't looking to God to be my sustainer. So we have to have a proper view of the law, or we will never, never, ever understand the gospel. And we also have to have a proper view of the law so that we will understand how do we enjoy the fruits of living in the presence of God. How do we enjoy the fruits of living 
in the presence of God. Well, that's why he gives us the law. So that you'll know how you are to live in such a way that pleases the one that you should most want to please. Why do you want to please him? Well, he gave his own son to prove to you how much he loves you. To demonstrate in no uncertain uh, terms how far he was willing to go to rescue you from your condition of slavery. The hard thing about this life is sometimes we forget these things. Sometimes we, we don't see it as clearly. I think one of, the, one of the great values of being regular in your time of worship is that we are continually put forth this vision of God and how steadfast He is in His love and pursuit of you. It's reminding us of the compassionate nature of this wondrous God. It's hopefully transforming our faulty view of God as the stern stepfather who's ready to smack you on the, the fingers when you do something wrong to the God who has gone into the depths of hell to bring you out. That he is so patient with you and long-suffering with you and eager to hear of all your struggles and difficulties in life. He's that, he's that father that you can go to in the middle of the night because you need a drink of water and not worry about being sent back to bed. He's that, kind of, he's that kind of daddy. And that's what the gospel shows us. And that's the kind of daddy that you want to please. So, what's the power to live as God calls us to live? It's being united with Christ, united with Him in His death, knowing that we've died to the power of sin over us, united to Him in His life, that because we're united to Him, we get to actually be in the presence of God, so much so that we have a new master, a new God, a new power, a new sustainer, a new provider, a new joy. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that the gospel we look at continues to show us these things. Lord, I pray that as we go about this week, we would be mindful of the fact that you have indeed empowered us to walk in the way that you have called us to walk because you have united us with Christ himself, who died to the power of sin, which is death, and demonstrated your power at work by his resurrection. And if we are united to him in our resurrection, we too have this power at work in us to live according to the teaching that you have given to us. Lord, help us to be eager to do that, that we will know that we please you. In Jesus' name, amen.